Hello, doctor. Oh, you're a triceratops. Yes, is that a problem? No, no, not at all. I, I, I guess some dinosaurs might think, you know, because I'm a Trianosaurus that I can't be a psychotherapist for a species I might eat. But I keep those two parts of my life very separate. So please, have a seat. I wanted to talk about the other day when I was over in the swampy area with some other Triceratops and it was raining. I mean, not full-on raining, but kind of raining. And I realized the night before I had had a dream where it was raining in the dream, just the way it was now. But in the dream, every time I put my head in the water to get the swamp grass, there was no swamp grass. And I was getting so... Hey, are you singing? Me? No. You were totally singing. Like my problem was not worth your full attention. Do you think I'm stupid? I know there's this whole triceratops or stupid thing. That That's a thing, right? I have never heard that. What else are you worried about? Did you just yawn? No. Well, yes, there was a volcano going last night where I live, so I hardly slept. I guess my big worry is this mass extinction thing. I'm sorry, this, this what? Mass extinction? You know, how all the dinosaurs were talking about how there's going to be a rock coming out of the sky and we'll all be gone forever. Nobody's mentioned this to me. When was this supposed to happen? Um, Wednesday, I think. You you think? Wouldn't this be like a good thing to pin down? What was that? What was what? Something went boom. That happens all the time. No, it doesn't. Why wasn't I told about this? When you're a Trianosaurus, other dinosaurs, they just exclude you. You were all just going to let this mass extinction happen, and I was going to be the only one who didn't know what it was. There, there. I'm positive somebody meant to tell you. No, no. We're not going to talk about this anymore. There's going to be a show about dinosaurs, and I'm going to use that time to think about how I turned into somebody that nobody cares about. And now calling somebody. We're live. We're at the Peabody Museum. Uh, we're in the Great Hall of the Dinosaurs uh, on in the Yale Peabody Museum of Natural History in New Haven. Uh, we have a live audience here. Don't wake up the dinosaurs, but just applaud so that you know the dinosaurs know that you're here. Just like <laughs> one of the dinosaurs just rolled over a little bit, but I think he's he's going back to sleep. All right. So we're going to be talking uh, first of all about dinosaurs, and then also about the nature of this just amazing place. Uh, that uh, the minute you 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 show up here, you realize that it is a great place to go look at dinosaurs, but there's a lot of other stuff going on here, too. So we'll do all of that. Let me tell you who's here with us today. Richard Conniff uh, is uh, sitting to my immediate right. He's kind of the reason we're here. He's the author of House of Lost Worlds, Dinosaurs, Dynasties, and the Story of Life on Earth. Uh, He was with us for a... We did an entire show about dioramas, and we thought, well, why stop there? And, but anyway, Dick was there for that one, too. So, Also with us, Jacques Gauthier. He is curator of vertebrate paleontology at the Peabody Museum. Daniel Field is an evolutionary paleobiologist. And just on May 9th, he successfully defended his dissertation at Yale. He's now officially Dr. Daniel Field. Yeah. I think that merits some applause, too. Yeah. My boy. And a little bit later, we will uh, meet yet another guest. But, Dick if I'm going to get you to kick things off here. One of the things that you say towards the end of your book is that sort of in the middle of the last century, dinosaurs were in disrepute. They were regarded as a bunch of slow-moving morons who really were... I mean, it's, it's still not a nice thing to call somebody who isn't a dinosaur. If you call somebody a dinosaur, you're usually saying something kind of negative about them. But they really had a, a very different reputation then than now. Say more about that, and, and then we'll talk about what changed. Even paleontologists were not all that interested in dinosaurs at the time 
according to one paleontologist, because they didn't seem to have any evolutionary future. And also, right from the start, uh, O.C. Marsh, uh, the great 19th century paleontologist at this museum, when he named dinosaurs, he gave them names like Morosaurus, which means stupid. And he regarded them as slow-moving. You know, they were considered swamp-bound. They, they were big. That was about it. Big, slow, and stupid. And so some of that shifted uh, due to something that another person prominently associated with this institution, John Ostrom, found and, and thought about in, in Germany, right? I mean, uh, explain what happened in Germany. Uh, John Ostrom was traveling in, 18, in 1970, sorry, a century after Marsh's big expeditions, and um, he was looking at uh, pterosaurs, so these winged creatures from the same period as dinosaurs, and he went to a museum in, uh, Netherlands, in the Netherlands, and he was looking at this specimen that was supposed to be a pterosaur, and as he looked at it um, and took it over to the window and held it in the light and all that, he realized that it wasn't a pterosaur at all, that there were feathers there, that it was actually an Archaeopteryx. And it was then only the fourth Archaeopteryx specimen known in the world. And this is the sort of herb bird, the original bird from 160 million years ago. And it was a really big deal. Um, so he had this big moment of conscience about what to do because he needed to take that specimen home with him to New Haven to study it. And if he told the guy who was the director of the museum that it was an Archaeopteryx and precious, he might not get to take it away. If it was just another pterosaur, no big deal. So which does he do? Does he tell the truth or does he tell the easy lie? But John Ostrom was described to me as a squeaking, honest man, and so he blurted out the truth. It was an Archaeopteryx. And the director of the museum snatched the specimen away from him took it away to his office, and Ostrom was despairing that it was all over. And a few minutes later, the director came back with a shoebox and handed it to him to take home to New Haven. And so he walked out, and he was delighted because he had this thing that he could study. He took it back to New Haven. There's a little bit more to the story, but he took it back to New Haven, and he recognized things in that, that Archaeopteryx, particularly uh, about the wrist uh, joint, um, that uh, were very close to a dinosaur he had discovered six years earlier named Deinonychus, and Deinonychus is this character right over our shoulders here. Very ferocious, very uh, not slow and stupid and dull. And so that connection between birds and dinosaurs really started to take shape then and really began the modern dinosaur renaissance. I just want to say that elsewhere in the museum there's a diorama of John Ostrom being honest in the German museum. You know, and it kind of illustrates that. That's, I'm making that up. That's not true. Uh, <laughs> but uh, sort of illustrates honesty is the best policy in paleobiology. So, Jacques, from there, I mean, we're going to have to telescope a lot, right? We're going to have to skip a lot of steps here. But from there, there is this kind of reimagining of what dinosaurs were. They weren't one thing anyway, right? They lived for 150 million years or so. There's a lot. There were a lot of different things. A lot still of living. Still living. We'll what would when, Thanksgiving be like? Right. We'll come, we'll <laughs> come to that. all the dinosaurs. We'll come to that. But the dinosaurs <laughs> even, say, 100 million years ago or 50 million years ago um, were maybe not these hulking, stupid, swamp-dwelling, uh, you know, brutes, right? They were, there was something more going on. Yeah, I, it was really uh, Thomas Henry Huxley Darwin's bulldog, as he was called, who popularized the notion in the English-speaking world of the connection between birds and dinosaurs. But he had three, five dinosaurs, maybe. And uh, he was the first to recognize uh, that there was this connection that these extinct dinosaurs may be the connection between regular reptiles and, and the living birds. 
Mm -hmm. You have to remember that uh, next to the origin of humans, the question of the origin of birds is probably the greatest impediment to a general acceptance, the idea of evolution, because it was difficult even today mm -hmm. to imagine what's the intermediate between flying and not flying, right? Mm -hmm. uh, he popularized that because the dinosaurs in particular they knew real well were Archaeopteryx mm -hmm. and uh, Compsognathus, another little chicken-sized thing, all described at about the same time. And they looked very bird-like, right? Mm -hmm. And so this was a, made a big hit at the time. But the subsequent discoveries of dinosaurs by Marsh and Cope out in the American interior west, really, Stegosaurus and Brontosaurus and Triceratops, those don't look like birds. Mm -hmm. Now, we, as evolutionary biologists, we don't care how similar you are. We only care how related you are, and uh, those are definitely stem birds. But that led to a segue many years until uh, John Ostrom here really resurrected that by this discovery and show you what a sea change it was. I went to my first Society of Vertebrate Paleontology meetings in, in the mid-70s in Flagstaff, Arizona, when John Ostrom and Peter Vellnofer from uh, Germany presented the new found Eichstatt Archaeopteryx. And at that time, all the vertebrates that weren't mammals were handled between 8 a.m. and noon on the first day of the meetings, and the next five days were all mammals, you know. Mm -hmm. That has changed utterly in the society now. It's all dinosaurs and mammals are relegated to a small part of it. You know, but but in some ways, uh, Dick, the, we'll come back particularly with Daniel to the to the birds uh, in, in a second. But there was other this kind of image of the dinosaurs changed too. I mean, if we were sticking with a, a 1950 picture of a dinosaur, Jurassic Park would be like a lot of things just standing around. Yeah. Not chasing Sam Neill and Laura Dern at all, yeah. uh, and not doing anything very interesting. No. It'd be just like this two and a half hour movie yes. with people eating, with animals eating swamp grass. But so look at it, it's the, the mindset of the people. These were overgrown lizards, right? You know. So instead, we got. I mean, in some ways, one of the changes was a rethinking even of the metabolism of these animals. Absolutely. Uh, so when John Ostrom was looking at this creature, Deinonychus, behind me, um, he saw that it was a fast predatory creature, um, that it was dynamic, and he went to this uh, paleontology society in, eight, in 1968, sorry, I keep mixing up my centuries, and he stood up before the paleontologists there and he said that, that dinosaurs may in fact have had a metabolism similar to that of living modern mammals, and there was a gasp of horror in the audience because that idea was so such a heresy, mm -hmm. and so that really began the idea that dinosaurs were not just fast and, and agile, but maybe even smart and, and maybe not all that different from the animals that we know today. Um, and so that was the beginning of the modern dinosaur renaissance. We do want to sort of get at this uh, at the level of what is what's sometimes called mesofacts, this idea that, that the idea, I, for example, I grew up, I'm old enough so that I, I probably grew up kind of with some old dinosaur images uh, in my head. So I, I at least want to be brought up to date, and maybe everybody else does too. So, um, so Daniel, let's start with this whole bird thing. I mean, basically sure. what we're saying here is that birds are just kind of, the, the kind of dinosaur, or descendants anyway, of the dinosaur that didn't get wiped out. Exactly, yeah. We now know that birds are nothing more than derived theropod dinosaurs. It's a very interesting time to be studying birds and dinosaurs for that reason. When we say that, what, I mean, obviously, there's got to be s some difference here. I mean, the bird that you're going to, I don't know, the birds are at my feeder right now, although I did say this morning, 
You're just a bunch of derived theropod dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> Why should I be giving you sunflower That's good. seeds? It's important that they appreciate that. Yeah, no, I don't. I think they were offended, but. Um, <laughs> So but there are differences, right? I mean, oh, certainly. Uh, you know, th- that the thing that we call a bird today would not have been recognizable. No, then. but it is one of the great scientific misconceptions that has persisted to the present day. The fact that all dinosaurs went extinct 66 million years ago, that's just not true. We now know that one lineage of dinosaurs survived the extinction event and was around to radiate quite explosively in its aftermath. So today there are no fewer than 10,000 living species of bird which means that there are no fewer than 10,000 living dinosaurs out there today. But of course, living birds differ from a lot of the dinosaurs that we see in the museum here in important ways. Uh, Many of these uh, dinosaurs that are somewhat more distantly related to living birds likely would have exhibited, say, slower metabolic rates. Many of these dinosaurs would not have exhibited things like feathers, although we know that some of them did. And as we move up the dinosaur tree and get progressively closer to living birds, we see the sequential acquisition of all of the features that we tend to think of as characteristically bird-like, things like elevated metabolic rates, things like the ancestral ability to fly, and things like feathers. Was that what did survive this Cretaceous Paleogene mass extinction? Let's call it K-Pig. I think K-Pig is a nice uh, abbreviation. Fair enough. I heard it was good to be a turtle also right around that time. Weren't there some other things that kind of pulled through? You know, there were some things, uh, specifically those that lived underground or underwater, that would have been uh, shielded from the pulse from all the ejecta cast into space by the asteroid impact when it re-entered the atmosphere to give off like micro, microwaves that if you were large and standing outside in the open, you know, in 20 minutes you'd cook. And so some small things went through and things that lived underwater like the turtles and crocodilians went through like, what happened? Where'd everybody go? Mm. You know? <laughs> but the mammals and the dinosaurs and the lizards all, you know, 80, 90% of these things went extinct at that time. Yeah, it was bad. So, well, so now where do li- if we're going to think about sort of birds as a kind of throughput uh, from, from dinosaurs, where do lizards fit in? I mean, I grew up thinking of dinosaurs as just big lizards. Right, I think most people did, and you can see that mindset very vividly here in the hall. We don't have many dinosaurs from Connecticut. What we have is dinosaur footprints and mm. endless numbers of them. Footprints all over the place, no tail drags. Mm. Birds hold their tail off the ground. But look at our mounts here, I'm embarrassed to say. From the mid-1930s, they had to break the tail on brontosaurus to get it down to the ground. The only evidence we had is dinosaurs keep their tail off the ground, yet because we thought they're lizards who do drag their tails, you know, we had to get them down to the ground. So what is the connection between a modern-day lizard or a modern-day crocodile? And, and what? Yeah, go ahead, Daniel. Uh, well, we know that there's an evolutionary connection, to be sure. I mean, all life on the planet today shares a common ancestor at some depth. But among living vertebrate animals, these dinosaurs around us today are most closely related to birds. And interestingly, the closest living relative of birds are the crocodilians. Mm. So together, those two living groups form a group that we call archosaurs, which is a name formerly defined by Jacques in the 80s. And uh, lizards and snakes, this group that we call the, the squamates, the lepidosaurs, those are basically the next branch off the tree. So we have lizards, snakes, crocodilians, and birds all forming a group that today we call reptilia or, or living reptiles. But among living reptiles, it's the crocodilians that share a more recent common ancestor with birds than they do with lizards or snakes. 
You know, since uh, Jacques uh, pointed out uh, some of the bones that are here, and uh, we'll just point the microphones at them so that the people at home can see them too, but Richard Conniff, one of the things we've kind of been through, talk about mesofax, is in fact the status of the brontosaurus. I grew up, there were brontosauruses. One day somebody said, oh no, there's no brontosauruses. Last time I heard brontosauruses were back. What's going on with brontosauruses? Bring us... Well, so, so Brontosaurus and, and Apatosaurus are closely related, and uh, they were both discovered by O.C. Marsh and his collectors in the 1870s. In fact, if you go into the other room, there is this vertebra uh, that was discovered in 1877 in Colorado by a guy named Arthur Lakes and um, a guy from Connecticut named Henry Beckwith. They were climbing in the hills, and suddenly they came across upon this incredibly colossal vertebra, and they brought it back. So uh, anyway, then there was this huge debate that goes on among paleontologists about everything, it seems, um, often ferocious debate, and, uh, and Brontosaurus disappeared. I think people said it was basically a juvenile Apatosaurus. And um, then very recently, last year, I think it was, uh, somebody published the results of looking at that entire group of dinosaurs and came to the conclusion that, in fact, Brontosaurus is a legitimate scientific name. It's a separate genus. And um, so it, it, there was a ceremony here with Jacques presiding, and Brontosaurus was back. It's a great party. All right. Uh, yeah, let's hear it. <laughs> Represent. <laughs> All right. So a lot of people might know that, Daniel Field, but... Uh, I've been in bars recently where these huge fights break out about Triceratops versus Taurus. <laughs> I believe yeah, it. Uh, Taurosaurus. Like, are they the same thing? Are they not? Guys step outside in the alley. It gets bloody. <laughs> what kind of perspective can you give us on that one? That's a little less well-known, but kind of a similar conversation. Sure. Well, with the caveat that my views on the topic are uh, a little bit uh, biased, uh, we have uh, taken on the question of whether two very famous Peabody Museum dinosaurs that you can see on the stage over there, Triceratops and Taurosaurus, indeed represent the same kind of dinosaur. And so Taurosaurus is that skull right up at the top, the very large one with the two holes, those mm. two large perforations in the frill. And the rest of those horned dinosaurs there with the solid frills, those are Triceratops. And so back in 2010, a really interesting hypothesis was published by some researchers out in Montana, suggesting that perhaps Taurosaurus might represent nothing more than the mature form of Triceratops, and that the frill elongated posteriorly and developed those two prominent holes late in life. And that struck me, as well as my co-author on this project, who's now a faculty member at the University of Bath in the UK, Nick Longridge, as an interesting testable hypothesis, given that we have such great skeletal material from both Triceratops and Taurosaurus here. And so we set out to try to test this idea of whether Taurosaurus and Triceratops really were the same thing. And in the end, we ended up rejecting the idea that they were the same, because the Peabody actually happens to have a juvenile representative of Taurosaurus in its collection. And so that's incompatible with the idea that Taurosaurus represents the mature form of Triceratops, because we were able to identify both young Taurosaurus specimens and fully mature Triceratops specimens. So on that basis, we rejected the idea. All right. So that's it. It's done, right? It's over. Uh, I think so. We'll, we'll see what turns up in the literature next, though. Okay, Colin, yeah. one thing about these two, all these specimens back here of, of, of uh, Triceratops and Taurosaurus is that they were all collected by one guy named John Bell Hatcher 
who's completely forgotten, mm. it seems. But he was the, the, one of the best dinosaur collectors of the 19th century, and he did these, um, this amazing work. He would go out into the field in these impossible locations, and he would bring these massive stones containing fossils back over horrible territory. First, he would get them out at times by himself, sometimes weighing as much as a ton. Mm -hmm. And, um, and he, uh, he collected constantly, collected great stuff, brought it back. He was routinely underpaid by O.C. Marsh. So he um, supported his science by playing poker in the uh, pioneer American <laughs> West, carried a gun, he had, knew how to use it, and um, he's just one of the great, great heroes of, uh, that, that I came to know, uh, researching the history of the Peabody. A lot of these characters thread through uh, Richard Conniff's book. We're going to take a little break here. We're going to come back uh, with more dinosaurs and more of the story uh, of this museum and some of the people that, uh, the kind of people that Dick's talking about right now. So let's take a break. We'll be right back after this. Yeah! Paleozoic, Mesozoic, Cenozoic, don't you know it's funny how the time goes by? Seems like only yesterday we slithered out of the sea and now we got to wear a suit and tie. For 57 million years the dinosaurs ruled the land but now they're dead and that's just fine, you will conclude. Now I'm not saying they weren't real nice once you finally broke the ice. Live from the great dinosaur hall of the Peabody Museum in New Haven. Let's hear it, audience, for our dinosaur panel. Woo! All right, we've got a lot of things to talk about in this segment, and we want to talk specifically, too, about some of the, what the future holds. But before we get to the future, uh, Dick, since you already brought this up, uh, let's look back into the past also. I want to say Richard Conniff is with us. He is the uh, author of House of Lost Worlds, Dinosaurs, Dynasties, and the Story of Life on Earth. It's the story of this building that we're in right now, too. Daniel Field is an evolutionary uh, paleobiologist, uh, newly minted Dr. Daniel Field, and Jacques Gautier is a curator of vertebrate paleontology at, here at the Peabody Museum. So, um, Dick, in your book, you, know, you just alluded to this, and I wanted to get into this too. When I thought, think about people going and looking for dinosaur bones, I think about them going and looking for dinosaur bones. I don't really think about them in 1870 going to places that in the American West that were not particularly stable, not particularly safe, people who either had to be under the guard of the army or maybe should have been under the guard of the army, people who were being watched carefully by the Sioux uh, as they went through. To say a little, these people were, these O.C. Marsh and, and some of the other people you write about, the, you had to be pretty intrepid to do this job. Yeah. In 1870, uh, he began his first of four expeditions to the American West, and this was the year after the Trans-Pacific Railroad had opened up the West, and it was completely new and completely hostile because uh, the Native Americans did not want these in invaders in their country. And yet, O.C. Marsh recruited a dozen Yale students. They were, some of them had just graduated, some of them were still students, and they went out into the American West. They took the train the whole way, and um, you know, when they got across the Missouri River, a number of them fired their guns for the first time. Um, they, they got to Nebraska, where they were going to meet up with Marsh, who had gone ahead, and their train uh, deposited them at 1 o'clock in the morning in the middle of nowhere, uh, still eight miles from the fort that they were going to. And before they arrived, they had heard that there was a party of hostile Indians there, so they'd strapped on their holsters and had their weapons, which they didn't know how to use, really. And, and then, you know, the train pulls away and leaves them there. 
<laughs> in the middle of nowhere. And you imagine, you know, how naive you are just getting out of college and, and sort of being in this incredibly strange, hostile habitat and not knowing any, even anything about paleontology. They thought they were going out there to, um, to shoot buffalo and to fight mm. Indians. I mean, mm. how naive can you get? Um, and yet they made these great discoveries as they started to put their nose down in the dirt and dig. And um, the discoveries are in this room. So, you, you know, uh, this is the peculiar thing. When you come to this museum, you're so bowled over by these dinosaurs that you miss the little sideshows. And one of them is right over there. And it's a bird called Hesperornis and another bird called Ichthyornis. And they are birds with teeth. And they were a huge deal. These kids brought them back from the American West with O.C. Marsh. And then O.C. Marsh proceeded to study them for the next 10 years and began to establish that bird-dinosaur connection um, pretty early on. And so the, that, that expedition um, also, they, they also discovered horses. They discovered lots and lots of horse bones. And so they put them together, and they realized that they had you know, a complete series of, of the evolutionary history of the horse from a five-toed creature to, uh, to the present modern-day hoof. And that sort of gave Darwin key evidence and Huxley key evidence that they needed in the 1870s to defend the idea of, of evolution by natural selection. Darwin actually called it that and the tooth birds together the best evidence that he had seen in his lifetime for evolutionary theory. You know, Jacques, if he's going to talk about birds with teeth, I guess we better get to dino chicken. <laughs> uh, so tell us about it. dino chicken. I'm sure that's not what you call it. Uh, it works for me. Yeah. Uh, one of our uh, former students, who's now been hired as a professor here, looks at these transformations that we see in the fossil record, like from ancestor Hesperorn is shared with living birds, and uh, notes uh, the changes that have taken place in the skull. Then he goes into the laboratory and manipulates uh, gene expression patterns uh, of embryos inside the egg in order to generate the actual transformations that we see take place in the fossil record. So he understands mechanistically how these things work. And one of the things you can do is take mouse epithelium, oral epithelium, stuff from inside the mouth of a mouse, and put it in a chicken's embryo's mouth and make it grow teeth. Two tissues have to encounter one another on the margins of the jaw in order to make a tooth. They don't meet in birds. They have no teeth. They get a bill put those back in there. They grow teeth, and then the face changes from that of a bird's bill to the raptors behind us. Mm -hmm. It's all governed by there being teeth present in the skull. It's the snout to beak? Uh, yes. Yeah. And so we know that transition took place. We can see it. Right. But he goes into the lab and actually makes it happen. When I was at Yale, I was in Snout and Beak, which is a, a secret society. Right? <laughs> oh, and, uh, and, and so, so, I mean, once again, when you, when you talk about something like that, obviously uh, the people who are doing this have never seen a horror movie or they wouldn't do it because it's obviously the chicken will teeth, with teeth will get out and, and, and rip the veins out of people's necks. But maybe, once again, pinpoint a little bit more exactly why this is significant in terms of understanding the kinds of things we're talking about here. You know, well, it's how to understand these great evolutionary transitions. Look, the origin of flight. I mean, what could be a more frighteningly difficult thing? It's happened three times in the entire history of life, right? Insects, bats, oh, pterosaurs, huh? and then birds. And that line twice, you went into flight along the line that heads towards birds. First as pterosaurs long ago, 240 million years, and then much later as birds. But once they got on their hind legs and started running around, the uh, dinosaurs freed their forelimbs to play another role in their biology and 
mm. twice took to the air. And so I think understanding these great transitions tells us a lot about, you know, how the history of the world works. So, um, Daniel, uh, now that you're a newly minted doctor, what are you interested in now? What are you trying trying to figure out next? Still sounds a little bit surreal to hear that. Yeah. So I'm. Oh, you're surrounded by dinosaurs, and that sounds surreal. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. I'm I've, I'm used to the dinosaur part. Um, I'm particularly interested in the origin of modern bird biodiversity. Mm. So what I try to do in my research is use the fossil record of living birds and their dinosaurian ancestors as a lens through which to better understand the origin of modern birds mm -hmm. and the origin of those features that today make birds unique, things like feather-assisted flight. Mm. So that was one of the main topics that I tried to broach in my PhD dissertation. So one of the questions would be, we know that there were big things like birds before the mass extinction, but the question would be, were there also little things that maybe more closely resembled in size, the birds that we have now, but those tend not to survive that well as, as fossil records? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, trying to understand when in the history of the Earth what we consider to be modern birds first arose has been a really difficult problem. Uh, in the fossil record, we often find that smaller-bodied organisms don't get preserved as readily as larger-bodied organisms for obvious reasons. They get broken up more easily, and they're just less likely to get turned into fossils. And for that reason, it's really taken until now for ideas about the origin of modern bird biodiversity to, to really start to crystallize. And uh, just a few years ago, a study that I was a part of uh, that took place here at the Peabody Museum set out to try to comb all of the latest Cretaceous fossil localities from the northern hemisphere in order to try to understand what sort of birds and bird-like animals were preserved in those sediments in order to shed light on what might have happened to birds and their close relatives at the Cretaceous-Paleogene mass extinction boundary 66 million years ago. And we found evidence for several archaic lineages of bird-like creatures that are just slightly outside living bird diversity, extending all the way up through the fossil record until the Cretaceous-Paleogene boundary, after which point they're never recovered in the fossil record again. So we interpreted that as evidence of birds and their kin suffering catastrophically 66 million years ago. And so the fact that today we have 10,000 living birds surrounding us is a really beautiful thing because we almost lost all of bird life completely before it ever really began to radiate into what we consider to be modern bird diversity. So Jacques, back to something that you said right at the beginning of this conversation. From a certain perspective, that means we have 10,000 different kinds of dinosaurs. You know, only about 5,000 mammals. Yeah. So I don't know why we call this the age of mammals. <laughs> I guess because we write the textbooks, you know. Well, also because the, the dinosaurs lost the nomenclature battle. We started calling them birds. Exactly. That's a good point. Yeah. We made dinosaurs go extinct by start calling them something else, you know. So when people talk now, we did a whole show about de-extinction. But when people talk now about de-extinction, I mean, one argument would be, well, they're not extinct. They're, they're here. We're just calling them something else. But obviously, one reason to do a dino chicken would be to sort of, could you re-engineer birds so they got to be a little bit more like what dinosaurs used to be? Sure. Yeah. And th you think that's going to happen? He did it with two proteins. I mean, right, the expression of two proteins, he changed the snout from a chicken beak to a dinosaur snout. Yeah. Two lousy proteins. <laughs> right. 
another thing that's happening right now somewhere, Jacques, somebody is discovering a new dinosaur, right? I mean, I just feel like you pick up the Science Times yeah, or whatever. Yeah, what is it, once a week or <laughs> something yeah. now? Uh, so are these all, in fact, dinosaurs that nobody's ever heard before, or are we back to well, we are definitely at the very edge of a new renaissance with uh, dinosaurs. It was the American Interior West back in the 1870s, where all the stuff had had centuries, millennia, really, to get preserved on the surface and just lay there for Marsh and everybody to find. Uh, but most of the surface stuff has been picked up by now, and now it's all moved into China. Mm-hmm. So Asia is now equivalent to the American West in the 1870s, producing a treasure trove of, of new dinosaurs. And there's a, a big gap in the record from about 90 million to 150 million years old. It's all marine sediments here in North America. It's all from the ocean, no land. But all of that stuff is preserved perfectly in China, and they're just finding stuff all the time. That's changing completely our ideas about dinosaurs. I mean, who knew that Tyrannosaurus had feathers? Mm-hmm. Well, they found one in the lake bed there in China, and there it is covered with natal down. You know, that you put like in a down bag. And so mm-hmm. the idea of something, what, 14,000 pounds or whatever, all, a big fuzzy chick that could bite your car in half, you know? <laughs> I got one of the comforters from L.L. Bean that has the Tyrannosaurus <laughs> down in it. It's a special deal. It's just, yeah, no, it's very expensive. But um, So, yeah, I mean, I was reading in the New York Times today about a 242-million-year-old creature that swam the seas before most dinosaurs roamed the planet. Uh, they're calling it, uh, I can't even say it, a Tapodentus unicus or something, which is unique, strangely toothed, uh, and they're figuring out all kinds of stuff about its flamingo-shaped beak and its zipper of teeth and how it... It kind of vacuumed. It was like a hammerhead thing that vacuumed the ocean floor. Oh, yeah. I guess I'm sort of wondering, do we have, is there the analytical bandwidth to look at all this new stuff that's being found all the time? I mean, is there, there are so of, many more people yeah. uh, now interested in dinosaurs uh, all across the world, and in no small part because it gets into the newspaper, you know. A new bug doesn't. Right. So oh, there it is. We'll be doing and a bug show very soon. All right. We're going to take a quick break here. A big hand for the panel so far. We'll come back with our final segment here at the Beebody. Made it tough to buy a toupee. His teeth were seven inches long, and he had little teeny arms, and it made it hard to brush every day. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McNichol, Betsy Kaplan, Josh Nalea, and me, Kion Wolf, with help on the road from Lydia Brown and Lucy Nalpathanchel. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Littlefoot. For show pages, articles, and fossils of the original Here and Now staff, go to our website, wnpr.org. And now, back to Colin. Live from the great dinosaur room of the Peabody Museum in New Haven, it's the Colin McEnroe Show. Hey, hey. I just want to say, I don't know if I've fully conveyed. I mean, we are sitting in this room that have, has all these incredible dinosaur skeletons. It's usually we're sitting in a studio talking about things that we can't see, and it's very visually stimulating to be here, uh, just among all this incredible stuff. Uh, let me just say again that uh, sitting here is Richard Conniff, the author of House of Lost Worlds, Dinosaurs, Dynasties, and the Story of Life on Earth. It's also the story of this museum. Uh, Jacques Gautier, uh, he is the curator of vertebrate paleontology at the Peabody Museum. Uh, now joining us is Richard Kissel, uh, a paleontologist and director of public programs at the Peabody. Uh, he oversaw planning and installation of the museum's current exhibit, Treasures of the Peabody, 150 Years 
of exploration and discovery. So uh, during the break, uh, somebody from the audience said, uh, uh, maybe just say a little bit more about that mass extinction uh, event. So uh, Jacques, uh, fill us in. What, what actually happened and when did it happen? How did all this how did almost everything get wiped out? Well, here we are in what's been described as the Sistine Chapel of evolutionism, right? From that terrific, spectacular mural that starts out with the emergence on land and ends up with the asteroid extinction. We've known forever that all the dinosaurs have disappeared, the big ones at least, around 66 million years ago. But why had always been a problem and mm -hmm. one argued about it. And you can kind of see the artist's notion at the time. See, he put those big volcanoes in there, mm -hmm. you know? trying to get like what happened to them but in no small we wouldn't even be here if not for this event that an asteroid streaked out from space and hit in the yucatan peninsula we have the impact crater we know that it struck the planet at an oblique angle and its ejecta field uh, landed on western north america and i guess took out T-Rex, but if you'll see below that magnolia up there's little simolestes, little tiny rat-sized mammals that for 180 million years were living right there with the dinosaurs only, coming out at night, right? And staying really small, living up in trees. And it wasn't until the dinosaurs, the big ones at least, disappeared that the mammals had the gumption to come down out of trees, start coming out in the daytime and, and take over the world. But we have a lot of evidence now for this uh, impact, and we can see a layer out there, right, at 66 million years ago where there's shock quartz and iridium that's only found in primordial structures from outer space. And a lot of great data for this impact, and it happens to be right at the same time you get triceratops nose horn within a foot or two of this, and they're gone after that. That might be another example of one of those mesofacts, because I certainly grew up with the idea, well, we don't really know. There's five or six competing theories about why the dinosaurs uh, were ex became extinct, and I, I guess there aren't five or six competing theories anymore. Hey, I want to talk more about sort of where we're sitting right now. Um, and and uh, Dick Conniff, in your book, you really get into a lot of the personalities you've already uh, alluded to one of them. But, but in some ways, the early part of this is the story uh, of a guy named O.C. Marsh, uh, who, who was not forgotten by history, and also um, a pretty amusing, although perhaps not to them, rivalry between two guys, Marsh and Cope. So give us a sense of what's going on there. Well, so um, Marsh uh, was a latecomer to Yale. Uh, he was 24, I think, when he started here, and he um, was interested in minerals at the time and then uh, uh, wanted to become a faculty member here and... Uh, they said, well, you know, he was a good student, and they said, well, we have an opening, but only for a paleontologist. And at that point, he said, well, so much for mineralogy, I'll become a paleontologist. And it was a good thing, because basically everything you're looking at in this room, uh, and, and the room itself, is the result of, of O.C. Marsh's work. He was uh, distinguished not just by his great science, but also because he had a, an uncle, and that uncle was the richest man in the world. And George Peabody had started out as nobody at all in Boston, had to leave school and take care of his family, went to uh, start a, a retail business which grew into an international trading company, and eventually he became the, the, he moved to London and became a mercantile banker. And so he had scads of money earned in a single lifetime, and then he did this unprecedented thing of giving it away, almost all of it. And some of it came to Yale to create this museum for his nephew. Was it 150 grand that got this started? It was not <laughs> yeah, even if you even, you know even if if you do the uh, the inflation, it's like two million bucks. Yeah. You can't get a building, you can't get your name on a building for two million bucks these days. Right. 
And, and I guess it was nip and tuck, too, because more of the family had gone to Harvard. Really, O.C. Marsh was kind of the outlier down here at he, Yale. He was the outlier. He had come here because this was a really strong science school uh, because of a guy named uh, Silliman, Benjamin Silliman, and it was really strong on minerals in particular. So, uh, yeah, and then he persuaded his uncle not just to to give an equal amount to Yale as to Harvard, but he also told him what he ought to be giving his money to Harvard to do. Um, you know, uh, if we started to get into the whole story of Marsh and Cope and their rivalry, we'd use up the whole show, and anyway, people should read your book. But these are two guys who really became pretty, com they were friends for a little while, then not such great friends. And I, I just want you to tell one illustrative story, uh, and that's the one where I think it's Cope uh, gets the head on the wrong end of the dinosaur. Oh, yeah, that's a really em embarrassing thing. And uh, it was Elasmosaurus, and he put the head on the tail, and he had it. It was a published article. It was in, in print and out on the streets, and O.C. Marsh pointed out to him, not at all gently, because O.C. Marsh wasn't a gentle guy, that it was, in fact, backwards. And, and, uh, and Cope uh, tried to buy up all the copies and take them out of print, except that over the years, as their rivalry developed, Marsh secretly bought up all those that he could find and saved them for, for later use. And so uh, the one theory is that the rivalry began that way, and, um, and the other theory is that, and this is Cope's side of the story, that, that Marsh and he were out, uh, and Marsh and Cope were out collecting in New Jersey, uh, in the Marl Pits there. And as they were collecting, um, Marsh was going behind Cope's back and, and buying out his, his contacts there and making them send their specimens to him instead. So either way, um, not a very edifying start to one of the m worst scientific rivalries in all of the history of science. I, I like the first story because I, I just picture it being like, uh, Norm and Cliff from Cheers, you know, it's like, ah, I think you got the head on the wrong end of the dinosaur. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think I got the head on the correct end. No, I think you're wrong. And part of the problem was he had it kind of, uh, the, it would seem like the neck would be shorter than the tail, right? That sort of made sense that the neck of something would be shorter than its tail. It happened not to be the case with this thing, right? It did indeed. And, and uh, as I say, the, the, the Marsh was always a sort of superior guy and wanted to let people know how superior he was and made it painful to him. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I want to talk more about what's, what else is in this museum. And Richard uh, Kissel, maybe you can come in here mm -hmm. uh, sure. to this conversation, too. I, I know from reading Dick's book and even just like on the loading dock today, I'm talking to somebody who's telling me uh, interesting stuff that's going on up in, in the mineral uh, collection. But, you know, if you were to tell somebody the, the two or three things that aren't dinosaurs that are in this building that would blow people's minds, I'm sure you've got more than two or three things. Uh, sure. You know, ultimately, when you look at our collections, we have more than 13 million objects total in our collections, A to Z, anthropology to zoology. And when our visitors walk through the galleries, they see about 5,000 of those 13 million. Mm -hmm. And so what we have on, on public view is really less than 1% of the entire collection. And when, when we were working on this current exhibition, the Treasures of the Peabody exhibition, that was the real challenge was how do we communicate to our visitors and to the, the community here in New Haven that dinosaurs are a very important part of this story, but they are a part of this story. So some of the objects that we pulled out that, that I love to highlight in that exhibition, we have a 16-foot tapeworm, which we're very proud of to have on display. <laughs> It's uh, a Yale-educated tapeworm. It is a Yale. It was extracted from a Yale college student on March 18th <laughs> in 1896. And the first professor of zoology at Yale, Addison Verrill, one of his interests was, was parasitology. Mm. 
And uh, so, so that's one of the, the uh, great specimens if we have. People aren't going to get excited about a 16 foot tapeworm. <laughs> I mean, you know. How about Beryl and the giant squid? Yeah, and um, he was also uh, collecting the giant squid. But I think one of my truly favorite specimens that we brought out on exhibition for this, um, for, for this new display is the, the skull of a quagga, which is an extinct type of zebra. And it's from our mammalogy collection. And not only is it rare in that it's a specimen from an extinct species, but there's only a handful of skeletons known from this species. And the animal, the species, only one individual was ever photographed while it was alive. And the specimen that we have here in the museum is that individual. And so kind of as you're, you're boiling down into the rarest of the rare, I think that's a pretty dramatic example of, of the impact and the importance of natural history collections. Isn't that one of the creatures that they're re-extincting? Re What's that word? De-extinction. De-extincting. Yeah. Re-extincting would be bad. You yeah, would yeah. Want to <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're trying yeah. um, using modern zebra species to get something similar, but it's still genetically distinct from what from what that species was. I think was. in Petco you can get like a miniature quagga, but not, you know, <laughs> it's not a full set. So Dick, um, uh, we got to talk about a few other things uh, just from your book. Uh, you got to talk about the, the salivometer, is that how we say it? The salivometer? Well, yeah, that's a, a Pavlov, when he did his famous experiments on dogs, um, he had to measure their saliva. And the instrument that he used for measuring dogs' saliva improbably came from Leningrad and wound, it up in, in, wound up in New Haven at the Peabody Museum. And uh, this happened because one of the scientists from Yale, a guy named Robert Yerkes, was visiting with his daughter uh, at uh, Pavlov's lab, and Pavlov gave, gave it to her as a gift, a very odd gift, but a gift. <laughs> so you know those experiments about dogs salivating yeah. and bells ringing and all that? That's it. This is it. No, a salivometer is the gift of love. <laughs> um, but it, that is true. We talk about Pavlovian responses. I, I had never occurred to me that there was some specific saliva-measuring mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. You know, the idea that it would be here is that much more exciting. Jacques, in just a second, I'm going to ask you the most exciting thing to you that's not a dinosaur in this building, but uh, so I'm going to give you a second to think about what that is. Um, but, um, but uh, Dick, also, uh, there's some other stuff from your book, including, isn't there like some, I don't know, kind of funky little thing that's actually t turns out to be tagged by Darwin? Oh, yeah, there's a, there's a, yeah, I forget what it is. Is it a liverwort? Yep, it's yeah, a liverwort. Is it on display now it in is. the next room? Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, somebody was pretty recently going through the botanical collection and um, saw this little bit of frou-frou that looked like nothing at all and uh, looked a little closely, and there's the label, and it was collected by Darwin while he was on his round-the-world expeditions. So um, yeah, there's just lots of amazing little things that, that are in the back rooms that I, I think even people here don't know about. For instance, um, the, the, the uh, T-Rex was named in the early 1920s by uh, a rival of O.C. Marsh's, uh, another rival. He had a lot of them. Um, but recently somebody was going through the collection here and they found a T-Rex tooth that was, that was sent here in 1874 and which nobody had recognized as a Tyrannosaurus rex until quite recently. You know, we're pretty much out of time here, but I, one thing I, I want to get to for a second, Jacques, is the importance that there is a collection like this, that people are coming, as Richard's saying, only a tiny fragment of it is seen by people who walk through here. But I assume, I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of people are coming here to do research, that, that, that what's here these millions of things. Uh, there are just, our, be, yeah. just our paleontology department supports about 200 publications a year mm. that come out of people who come to study the collections. 
uh, either having the resources to come here and actually work on the material directly or now in the modern era where we can CT scan these things and print it out on a DVD and send it to you because it's kind of hard to put a stamp on Brontosaurus and put it in the mail. You know, and at the risk of ending on a hopelessly corny note, I know I was at the, I've been at the Yale Art Gallery a lot recently and talking to one of the young security guards there, one of the people in the Blazers, and she turns out to be from the, the city. She's got a job here, but this is kind of her first museum. She's working as just, you know, one of the supervisors in the rooms, and she's fallen in love with art. And I just was thinking about that today. This is the corny part, watching kids walk through this museum, kids from all over the city, from all kinds of other places. One of those kids maybe is, on some given day, the next John Ostrom, some kid who maybe wouldn't have ever seen this stuff, would never have, mm-hmm. have his or her mind catch on fire mm-hmm. uh, in a way and, and maybe do something with it. I mean, to me, that's the other real beauty of a place like this. I would say that most of my age cohort uh, in the geology department at Yale are in Earth Sciences when that was published in Look or Life magazine. It's so evocative, has that capacity to take you back to to a different time and place. Yeah, the mural is so spectacular. And and me too. I'm here because of that. And mm-hmm. people come in and see you, and they get excited. They say, I want to be, I I be go that, that far, guy. Man. I want to be that guy. All right, so how about a big uh, hand for our panel here? They've been great. I can now explain at last there was an ice or greenhouse gas to stop their little hearts from a ticking. A caveman who had happened by discovered when they were deprived dinosaurs tasted just like chicken. As a Trianosaurus who is particularly high on the intelligence scale, I'd like to say that this conspiracy theory about a rock hitting the planet and wiping us all out is. Well, to be nice, it's an example of a vivid and healthy imagination that we have.